all of a sudden these press reports in England start coming out about soldier deaths and how most of the deaths aren't actually from combat wounds. They were from the hospitals. And the war minister, Sidney Herbert, appoints Florence superintendent of the female nurses in hospitals in the East. So when Florence and her team get there, they find a nightmarish hellhole. The hospital wards are crowded with rats and bugs. The patients are like laying in their own excrement and they're on stretchers in the hallways. And apparently the hospital itself sat on top of this giant cesspool and it was contaminating all of the water. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women in history. I am Sarah Gorski. I'm Jupiter F. Stone. And I'm Chloe Skye. So it's Pride Month and my heart is bursting, bursting with rainbow colors and pride and love for all of my queer friends. And I was like, okay, what broad am I going to do this week? She has to be a queer broad, but I want her to be a secret queer broad. Like one of those broads that you've heard their name, but you had no idea they were queer. So I went on my Google, so I went on my Googles and I was like, okay, secret queer broads or whatever I typed in. (laughs) And this broad popped up and I've wanted to do her anyway. And now I'm super excited. Today, I am bringing you Florence Nightingale. I'm so excited. Okay, see, see. Do you guys know who Florence Nightingale is? No, no. Now, I don't know at all, but you do. I, I know who she, I know of her. I don't know probably anything you're going to tell us today. Oh, okay. All right, because you said you were looking, see, oh, that's exciting. So you knew who she was and what she did. I, I, I knew vaguely who she was. So like the, the vague version of her is that she's this super duper famous nurse. And like even today, I think nurses like take like the Florence Nightingale pledge and shit like that. So I knew she was a famous nurse, but I didn't actually know very much about her and how she became famous. And so, and I definitely didn't know that she was potentially queer, but the fact that she showed up in those lists that I was Googling blew my mind. And I thought, today's the day, today's the day for Florence. So we are here to do Florence Nightingale, who is also known as the lady with the lamp. Jupiter, if you ever, ever look at like old paintings in like the Victorian era, she's like the woman that's tending the soldiers in the hospital, like by lamplight and shit like that. She's like, she was uber famous in her time. And so many artists have like drawn pictures and like written songs about her. So she's, she's kind of one of those like iconic figures. Yeah. She's like this, this vaguely iconic from the Victorian era figure, which obviously today we don't like quite keep up on it. So. Right. That's probably how Chloe, Chloe, is that like how you vaguely know of her? Yeah. Just from like, references and literature from college like another name also it's a dope name it is a dope name name? is that a real name but why is she like popular and stuff well i'm here to tell you i'm here to tell you all right i'm just gonna jump right in then so florence nightingale was born may 12th 1820 in florence italy her parents literally named her after the city she was born in. Oh. I knew some families that did stuff like that. <laughs> they did the same thing to her sister, too. Uh, like, the, like her parents were on this extended honeymoon in which they had two children. They were abroad for, like, three years or something like that for their honeymoon. And during that time, they had two children. <laughs> Jeez. Wow, that's a, that's a honeymoon. No kidding. Needless to say, her family was pretty wealthy. Yeah, I was going to say. They, that sounds like wealth. <laughs> Hell yeah. 
<laughs> extended honeymoon. They and they were British, so England. They're from England, um, and in England they had two estates. So you know, we're talking <laughs> about like estate. When I say estate, like some of the articles are like they they had two houses. Let's be serious. They're talking about estates. They're talking about like Downton Abbey. Maybe not that fancy, but like fucking property with, we're talking about property people. <laughs> they had a summer home in Derbyshire called Leehurst and a winter home in Hampshire called Embley. See, if your home's got names, they estates. Damn. Uh, the articles that were like, the articles were like, they have two houses. I was like, mm, I know what that means. <laughs> so Florence was homeschooled by her dad. Surprisingly for the time period, because this is, so 1820. So this is like heavy Victorian era. This is like the big skirts and shit and women are housewives and they don't do anything else and they have smelling salts and they faint all the time because their corsets are too tight and shit, right? That's this time period. (laughs) That's my overview of the Victorian area, everybody. (laughs) Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Uh, But her dad also instructed her, like he gave her the regular education that ladies get, but then he also was like, no, I'm also going to teach you like math and shit. And he kind of taught her like the math and sciences, which was more than most women ever learned in this time period. So that was like... I feel like her dad was like a cool dad. At least moderately progressive. Is it progressive that like the dad was teaching her versus like the mom? I don't know. Is that very like American 90s? Theoretically wouldn't have even known. How could she have taught? Oh, the man stuff. And when you say like he taught her, did, did he specifically do it or did he have her taught? I mean, the articles that I found said that he homeschooled her, which made me feel like he definitely like at least partially had, like, like was the person who was teaching her the stuff. And because, like, five articles said it, I, I tend to I tend to believe when there's more than three articles that say the same thing that that's probably fairly accurate. <laughs> Just feels like one of those very thin line distinctions when a wealthy guy homeschooled someone or had someone homeschooled. So for them to be doing, like, for him to be, like, having to have that much resources to have somebody teach her and for him to choose to do it himself, I feel like is kind of telling of the closeness of their relationship. I think so, too. That was definitely, like, my impression in my research. Now, but being of this upper class, it was expected that she'd get married at a young age, but Florence was not into that thought. There's a quote from her saying... Why have women passion, intellect, moral activity, these three, and a place in society where no one of these three can be exercised? Ooh, Damn, throwing the bombs from a young age. And when she's a teenager, she woke up one day and received what is like generically being called a calling from God to help the poor and the sick. She said, quote, God called me in the morning and asked me, would I do good for him alone without reputation? And she was like, fuck, man, God wants me to be a nurse. She didn't use the word fuck because women back then didn't swear that way. <laughs> is this right. a Gorski interpretation? So, but at this time period, nursing is not a respected profession at all. Nursing is like a lower class, like a shitty, 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 shitty job that nobody wants to do. And so when she tells her parents she wants to be a nurse, they flip out. <laughs> They're like, no, you can't be a nurse. You're going to get married. You know where you belong. But Florence wow. was like... Um, no, this is what I want. And she holds fast. She refuses like nine different marriage proposals. She was sought after. Apparently one of the guys actually like pursued her for years. And eventually 
her dad caves a little bit and he's like, all right, you can go to Germany for three months and you can study at this hospital run by Pastor Theodore Fliedner, the school for Lutheran deaconesses. So she goes to Germany and she trains. And after she finishes that program, she goes to Paris and she trains with the Sisters of Mercy. And at this point, she's 33 years old, which in the Victorian era is actually kind of old. But at this point, she's been starting to make a name for herself in the nursing community. And it's 1853. And she goes back to England and she gets hired at a hospital for the quote gentlewomen in London and she quickly rises in the ranks and she's promoted to like the superintendent manager position so she's doing pretty good but then the Crimean War breaks out and I'm not gonna go in like the history of that war because it's not actually important it's not really relevant to her specific story but what's important so back in England, the, the war is going on. England sends all these soldiers to Crimea. And all of a sudden, these press reports in England start coming out about soldier deaths and how most of the deaths aren't actually from combat wounds. They were from the hospitals. Hospital. Oh, like infections and stuff? Or yes. like to the wrong uh, kind of medicine or just surgery errors. I'm about to expand on it a little bit. There was a historian quoted that for the British soldier, the least dangerous aspect of the Crimean War was the opposing army. It was more dangerous <laughs> to be injured and in the fucking hospital. Damn. And so these reports are coming around around England and the public goes fucking berserk. And the war minister, Sidney Herbert, appoints Florence superintendent of the female nurses in hospitals in the East. What a what a shitty job. I was gonna say, like what a shitty here's an opportunity. Like, oh man, <laughs> here's a piece of shit. Deal we're with gonna, it. They probably thought that they were passing all the blame onto her. Like, here we'll we'll put a woman in there it's as a sa- scapegoat. It sounded in articles that they were just fucking desperate because nurses, remember, are not respected. Right. Yeah. It's like a Hail Mary. But they're like, I don't know, we have to do something. Okay, Florence, get together some nurses and go and try to figure out a way to fix this. So she has this contingent of like 38 (laughs) volunteer nurses and they are sent to a military hospital in Scutari. So when Florence and her team get there, they find a nightmarish hellhole. The hospital wards are crowded with rats and bugs. The patients are like laying in their own excrement and they're on stretchers in the hallways. And apparently the hospital itself sat on top of this giant cesspool and it was contaminating all of the water in the oh in the God. building. So that so the water had to be rationed and they were lacking like the most basic supplies like bandages and soaps. And true to the reports that were coming into England, soldiers were dying of diseases like typhus, typhoid, cholera, and dysentery much more than they were dying from battle wounds. Wow. Holy Florence shit. was, you know, thoroughly grossed out, but she was not deterred. But she set about immediately procuring hundreds of scrub brushes and the least sick patients she like gave them scrub brushes and they were like okay we have to clean this hospital from floor to ceiling basic basic hygiene like basic hygiene like, you don't need a nurse to know you gotta not have I mean, septic I don't know. water maybe you do in the 1850s or whenever but apparently was. like the the military the administration was just like run so badly that they weren't getting supplies through and none of the shit was getting taken care of so she has them clean everything up she creates this invalids kitchen they call it where she made quote appealing food for patients with special dietary requirements she establishes a laundry so that patients can have clean linens, which wasn't happening. They were laying in like 
shit stained sheets wow. and shit like that. So she sets up a laundry. She sets up a classroom and a library to help like intellectually stimulate everybody and for entertainment. And in addition to this organizational shit she did, she also spends every waking minute caring for the soldiers. And at night after the sun would go down, she had a lamp and she would carry it around with her while she was making her rounds from patient to patient. In addition to literally treating them, she also would write letters on their behalf to their loved ones. And she'd also write families of soldiers that died to tell them that their loved ones died because the army like didn't always tell the families when the soldier had died. And the soldiers were really moved with her dedication and her sleepless nights going around and treating everybody. And they started calling her the Lady with the Lamp, which is still kind of her generic nickname today. Um, and they also called her the Angel of the Crimea. And those nicknames would both stick with her kind of the rest of her life. So during her first winter as Qatari, 4,077 soldiers died. 10 times more of them from typhus, cholera, and typhoid fever and dysentery than battle wounds. And Florence was not quiet about it. And she tried to clean it up and she set up all the stuff, but still they had all these people die. There's this quote from her, which apparently like was the shot heard around the world. She says, quote, the three things that all but destroyed the army in Crimea were ignorance, incapacity, and useless rules. And the same thing will happen again unless future regulations are framed more intelligently and administered by better informed and more capable officers. And then she also said, this was the big drama quote, it is as criminal to have a mortality of 17, 19, and 20 per thousand in the line, artillery, and guards, when in civil life it's only 11 per 1,000, as it would be to take 1,100 men out upon Salisbury Plain and shoot them. Tell them like it is! Those were, like, for a Victorian era, that was like, holy shit, Florence! (laughs) Wow. The British government at this point, uh, you know how they do their elections and then a whole new party takes over and there was this party shift and they finally, in March of 1855, dispatch a sanitary commission to Skatari and the commission cleans out the latrines and the cesspits and they flush out the sewers and they remove, apparently there was a dead horse in the cesspool that was part of also the contamination and they remove the dead horse. They, like, clean up the water source. I cannot imagine being any of the people on that team having to go just clean out dead horses and shit. Well, I mean, and... you think about where we are right now, right? And it's like washing hands versus sanitizer versus two masks versus one and all these things that, you know, are still, like, complicated and confusing and about germs and how yes. people react to it. So it's like, this is a couple hundred years ago, a dead not horse. Even. And, like, hand washing and that stuff is still not, at this time period, that's still not, sanitation isn't even a popular discussion. Like, it's not something that people attributed to these issues. But Florence did. Like, Florence was kind of, like, this this kind of beacon of, like, hey, P.S. <laughs> Sanitation's really important in this industry. And miraculously, within a few months of that cleanup crew, the mortality rate drops from 42.7% to 2.2%. Whoa. Damn. <laughs> That's so good. So like, there's like no question that Florence's literal work cleaning the hospital and her correspondence with all the political leaders about the sanitary conditions was what turned around their mortality rate. It that- saved so many lives. What would the world have been if she did not do that? Because 42%, so almost half? Well, it was. So almost half of soldiers died that entered the hospital. So that's so telling because in addition to cleaning it up and getting it to function as an operational space, also you're a badass nurse and you brought a team of badass nurses. And you know what? She probably calculated those 
death rates herself <laughs> and included it in this. In it's the stats, funny that cause... you say that, Chloe, because that actually moves us very well, segues to the second part of this. Oh, the second part. So hold that thought. <laughs> so uh, Florence is at the hospital in Scutari a year and a half, and then the war ends in the summer of 1856, and she goes back to Leehurst in England, her her estate in England. <laughs> um, and at this Ooh. point, she has gained an epic reputation. She's con- she's like considered kind of a war hero. Um, she didn't she didn't like this attention, by the way. She kind of was like, I just did what needed to be done. I don't want what the fuck. I did what everyone else should have done. But Queen Victoria and Prince Albert like adored her. Queen Victoria rewarded her with an engraved brooch that has become known as the Nightingale Jewel. And they grant her a prize of the equivalent of $250,000 from the British government. She don't need that money. (laughs) She don't need that money, but she decides to use the money to fund the St. Thomas Hospital in 1860. And within it, as part of the hospital, um, there's a Nightingale Training School for Nurses. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And she became this figure of public admiration. Poems and songs and plays are written and dedicated to her. Young women, like, aspire to be her. Apparently, like, all these women from the wealthy upper classes started enrolling at the training school, and suddenly nursing was, like, not looked down upon by the upper class anymore. It had come to be viewed as, like, an honorable vocation. So she started to get all these numbers. And this is the the Florence that history and, like, the Florence that Chloe, you and I, like, vaguely heard of, right? This is, like, this Mm -hmm. hero nurse who did all this shit. But that is not all the shit she did because her work as a data queen. Arguably, her most important work was as a statistician. So while she was in Crimea, while she was cleaning up the hospital, she kept meticulous numbers and data about all the patients and the numbers of patients that were sick and dying and the factors that changed and when and how the numbers changed. All the articles I read said that it just kind of calls back to her early fascination with science and math that her dad taught her. And like, she's she's like, I don't know what I'm going to do with these numbers, but I just know they're important. And she just like wrote it all down. And when she gets back home after the war, she befriends this guy named William Farr, who is a physician and statistician and a data visualization pioneer. And this guy, this guy, William, he helps her recognize kind of the potential of all this data that she's assembled. And they start collaborating together and they start to create these kind of design innovations in statistics. So at this time period, England's England's chief medical officer is named John Simon. He keeps insisting far and wide that preventing death from disease was just impossible. He's like, it can't be done. People are just going to die from disease and there's nothing we can do about it. But Florence is like, no, that's BS. Because we know that once we clean things up and once we get better systems in place, the numbers drop. So she takes all this data and she publishes a bunch of these diagrams. They're called Rose Diagrams. And this is at the end of the end of the 1850s. And they basically create these new versions of graphs that didn't, never existed before. I'm going to try to explain her chart inventions, but they're probably not going to make any sense. But I am going to post the pictures of them in her entry on our, in our database so people can look at them. But basically, she invents this new chart um, that's sometimes called a, a rose diagram. It's, it's also called a comparative polar area diagram. Um, but they do literally look like roses. 
It's basically like a super fancy pie chart. And they're also called coxcomb pie charts. I don't know. There's a bunch of different names for the same thing. And they vi- and so what these charts do is they very clearly show that the death from epidemic disease was preventable by known interventions that were implemented in the hospital. So you can see that the numbers change and you can see that rows kind of get smaller around as the time passes after things are implemented, right? This is actually the part of the story that I know. Is it really? Oh. Yeah, this is the part I, I know her really? from. Yeah, because there, there, there was an episode of a podcast called 99% Invisible about the evolution of data visualization, specifically, specific, everything you're saying right now. What the <laughs> Chloe, fuck? that's like the well, nerdiest thing you've ever said in front of me, and you've said a lot of nerdy <laughs> things in front of me. I mean, this is, I mean, this is really great because like one of my best friends from from Hawaii graduated and got like offered and I'm like, I don't know what you do. Please explain what you do. And that's what she does. She, 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 she does data visualization. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is really great. This, this information is going to improve my friendship. It was like integral in convincing the powers that be usually white men of anything. Like if, if they can't see, like actually see the data represented. They're like, why would we change anything? Exactly. So she creates all these different charts. One of them, it shows the the, the specific improvements they made in the hospital. She created another one that was showing uh, how much more deadly the military barracks were compared to the city of Manchester, which was like this disgusting coal pollution city at that time. Mm. And they were, she was like, oh, no, no, no. The military barracks are so unsanitary that they are worse than Manchester. And she, wow. so she has all these different charts that she's created And she didn't just create these mind-blowing graphs. She also was this, like, insanely savvy marketer. So she would take these graphs, and there's a quote from her that says, quote, printed tables and all in double columns. I do not think anyone will read it. None but scientific men ever look in the appendix of a report. No one frames a table of data and hangs it on the wall. But people do frame maps, end quote. So Florence takes all these graphs that she creates and these charts and these diagrams and she frames them and she sends them to like really influential people like politicians, VIPs. And she's like, hang this up in your office because people got to see this shit. And apparently it's very effective. Like people like once people can actually see the numbers, they actually understand the message (laughs) and the seeds of change are planted. So she writes this big book called Notes on Matters Affecting the Health, Efficiency, and Hospital Administration of the British Army, which is this massive report she publishes in 1858. It analyzes her own experience, and she proposes all these reforms to military hospitals all over. And her research in that book and otherwise sparks a total restructuring of the War Office's administrative department, including an establishment of a royal commission for the health of the army in 1857. So I skipped over it a little bit she, she ended up getting this viral infection when she was in Crimea at that hospital that ends up kind of following her the rest of her life and she has a lot of episodes where she's like totally bedridden and she doesn't leave her house very much so at this point she's not like pr- actually practicing nursing now she's this data researcher and this advocate to try to make change with the numbers that she's creating she's so good with all the data and the numbers that in in 1858 she is elected the first 
woman member of the Royal Statistical Society. She publishes hundreds and hundreds of, t- of different titles, articles, and books. And she sends all of her publications to war offices and the commander-in-chief and members of parliament and the houses. Apparently, Prince Albert was like uh, one of her number one fans. Um, <laughs> and she becomes this kind of populist hero because she's like just constantly got articles and things in the newspapers and the periodicals and everything. Um, and sometimes because she was a woman, people like were like, we don't know if we want to publish this. So she would just write it anonymously. She wouldn't put her name on it. She just knew how to get people to do what needed to happen. It must be partially because of her upbringing and her family. And like she knew these systems and she knew how politics worked. And she mm-hmm. had and she had connections. She's very savvy. So savvy. She continues to publish. She publishes this big um, title, quote, How People May Live and Not Die in India. In 1871, she writes about her finding that more women died delivering babies at hospital than they did at home. And she argued that training hospitals should be as safe as home deliveries or else they would ensure killing a certain number of mothers for the sake of training uh, midwives. Training, like T-R-A-I-N, like this is the hospital where the nurses are learning how to do it. It's like the old version of like when you're doing your residency. Like now we do a residency, but you have like you're in a real hospital. But there are teaching hospitals versus not teaching hospitals and things like that. Wow. I would not want to go to the training hospital. Except that she presented this research and then they clean up their act, right? Is what happened. Right, 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 right. One of her most famous books is called Notes on Nursing, What It Is and What It Is Not. And she gives advice on patient care and safe hospital environments. She has a fund set up to keep teaching the nurses. That's part of, I think, connected to the other, the hospital that she created too. Um, And she did all of this like when she was kind of bedridden and kind of ill and depressed, it said. And she used her influence uh, and her network with Queen Victoria and with the politicians to like, to get things moving and get things out there. And in the 1860s, she joins the social reformer Harriet Martineau in an attempt to repeal the Contagious Diseases Acts. It was this act which authorized the police to arrest and inspect prostitutes for venereal disease. In naval bear, in, in like around army bases and stuff like that. What the fuck? And Florence was like the me- the male clientele are just as responsible for the disease as the women. It is not okay that you can just like pick up a woman and give her like this gross inspection, and like and so they they were kind of rallying to get this act taken down. And it, after six years, the law is finally overturned. Good for them, because that's some bullshit. That is some some anti-sex worker bullshit. Yeah. I mean, it's not nothing new that we've seen discovered in our podcast, but no, but it is some bullshit. In 1907, she's conferred the Order of Merit by King Edward, and she gets the Freedom of the City of London Award the following year. She's the first woman to receive that honor. In May of 1910, she gets a celebratory message from King George on her (laughs) 90th birthday. Wow. And so for, deep. thank you for saving so many of our men's lives. Well, this is what this is where it's complicated is because I am both I'm so conflicted because I'm like, are you responsible for a massive amount of like colonization? Like she kept a lot of these people alive who then went on to go do really horrible things. I mean, to- this is kind of after most of the colonization has happened. Yeah. Like, I love her. I just don't love the people like, that she's, she's working, working for. for. We, can, we yeah. can not love the British and we can love Florence. That's okay. Yeah, right. I think so. I think that's fine. It, yeah, like, it seems like the, the other thing she did, like, what did you say, like, in India? What was that? Like, 
How people may live and not die in India. I mean, it's really about dis- controlling diseases and the spread of diseases and cleaning things right. up. Right, that's her whole shtick. She's usually, like, that's what I love. Is she, It's not just, like, I'm going to benefit you or, like, particularly, like, getting together with the royal family to work in their best interest with her skills. Like, no, this is my thing and this is my crusade. Yeah. Especially because, like, like you said, she got infected in that hospital as well. Yeah, and like, she, she, and she wasn't in it. it she wasn't doing it for, like, money and shit. Like, anything that she was given money, monetarily, she just put into her teaching hospital she was not you know part of that is that she came from a wealthy family so she didn't need the money but like most people would take the money and they would like run with the celebrity and she didn't she was like not about it hell yeah yeah i mean think about like how many people of privilege did this like it's an example of like hey if you happen to be so lucky that you're born into privilege like look at what you can do with this privilege for so many other people like she changed the fucking world I'm excited. I'm sorry. I, I know you're not even done wrapping up. But, she d- yeah. I'm not even done. I'm close, though. So um, she very soon after her birthday message from King George, she act- she passes away in July of 1910. So she was 90 years old, which is pretty old. Victorian era is pretty old. If it weren't for her own work, she wouldn't have lived that long. <laughs> <laughs> and considering that she was, like, chronically ill after she got that virus, like, that's a pretty fucking long time to be chronically ill, to be honest. Yeah. Like, that's- yeah. And to be working at that level. I'm impressed. After her death, the International Committee of the Red Cross created the Florence Nightingale Medal, which is given to excellent nurses every two years. Um, International Nurses Day is celebrated on her birthday. Wow. uh, Since 1965. She made the profession honorable. Yeah. Yeah. And in 2010, the Florence Nightingale Museum at the St. Thomas Hospital in London reopened to honor the 100th anniversary of her death. So in the nursing community, she is this beacon and this icon. Kind yeah. Of. But was she queer? I don't know. <laughs> you haven't mentioned it at, at all. all. Because most of the articles don't talk about her personal life at all. Like, once she turns down the marriage proposals, it's over. So there's this question, and there's all these articles about, like, was she or wasn't she? And there's not definitive proof, because she never flat out really wrote about sexuality and sexual experiences. Well, they would have taken all her medals away. And a lot of articles suggested she was maybe asexual, because there are records of her feeling disconnected from sexual attraction, and there's not really any evidence of her engaging or pursuing sexual relationships. Other articles think that she may have been a lesbian. She had several important and long-lasting intimate relationships with women. Intimate relationships in quote marks, because in the Victorian era... People had talked with that flowery language and they talked about like being intimate friends. And for some of some people that did mean like a lesbian relationship, but for some people it just meant, oh, we're really good friends. So there's kind of like this big gray area. One time when she fell ill, she was nursed back to health over a period of several months by an aunt with whom she developed very strong attachment. So strong that in a letter she described their relationship as, quote, like two lovers. It's her, also her aunt. That's kind of weird, but okay. But she's from England, so <laughs> I mean, that's look, normal. They're so rich. They're she's in tight royalty. with the royalty. It's yeah. also right. believed she had a long, intimate relationship <laughs> with this woman named Mary Clark from 1837 until her death, which is quite a long time, like almost their whole lives. There is a quote in one of her letters where she spoke of a female cousin saying, quote, I have never loved but one person with passion in my life, and that was her. Mm. And there is a quote in a memoir in which she states... Quote, I have lived and slept in the same beds with English countesses and Prussian farm women. No woman has excited passions among women more than I have. What? Okay, so that seems pretty clear to me. <laughs> that's the that's why you saved them for the end. It is so, it, but it's still gray area. Still question. There's no proof. 
Um, and what's interesting too about her, which is I found in several articles that talked about how she did not actually much care for the company of women. Like all of her really close friends were men. And she also preferred the male identity over female. And she often would like refer to herself in, in the masculine instead of the feminine, which is wow. very interesting. But she didn't like go around and wear pants like some of our broads have and stuff like that. Mm. But she definitely more than once referred to herself as, as a male. Now, maybe that was, like, to get her work published. Maybe that was to try to get more respect. Like, who the right. fuck knows? Because she knew that men, just in general, are going to be more respected and believed and listened to and whatever. And in the world of her access, I'm sure she was allowed access to do things that typically only men would be allowed to do. So why wouldn't you lean yourself towards that? Or... He was trans. <laughs> yeah. And we'll never know. Yeah. Because we'll never really know. Florence Nightingale will never be able to speak for themselves. Right. But I feel comfortable enough saying that it seems clear to me, based on my research, that Florence Nightingale was certainly at least some form of queer. And yeah. that makes her wholly appropriate for Pride Month. Yeah, I'm for it. So, I, Chloe, I can't believe you knew this just. St- st- the stats part of the story and not the nurse part. That's so funny because most people only know the nurse part. I knew that she was a nurse. and I. But the part of the story that I've like heard somebody talk about for 45 minutes was the stats part. Wow. That is so funny. So I only knew about her in the like romantic Victorian, like in romance novels, there's always like the young woman who's like the Florence Nightingale of the book. Right. Who goes to the soldier's side and nurses him back to health. And there's always this like Florence Nightingale reference. And so that was kind of like my context for who I understood her to be. So the the math part, the stats part, just like blew my mind. And arguably that's way more important. Like she only really was an active nurse for like five to six years. Yeah, because then once she got back from Crimea, she really kind of segued out of that and was just doing kind of the stats work and all the research and the writing and all that stuff. And the founding of hospitals and whatever. There was apparently like a hubbub a a few years back, maybe like a decade ago, there was this whole contingent of people that were like, we shouldn't praise her so much as a nurse. She was barely a nurse. She only nursed (laughs) for these couple years. She only changed the entire industry of nursing. (laughs) I mean, but whatever. That's that's not a big deal. But I think like even Florence, like even she didn't really like all the attention that got like fond over her about the work she just wanted to do the work and she believed that god called her to do the work so she just did the work i don't know what do you think about her as a broad we should know who she is i know i'm sitting here like i think i heard her name in a song once like wow there's there's gotta be like many generations of people who would not be alive today if it wasn't for the lives that she saved yeah like we don't even know how but like you look how many white people are on this planet the reach of her like that yeah the reach of that I, th- yeah. I bet there'd be less. I bet people do believe that God was called to have her do this. She literally saved, like, wow. Well, I was super pleased in my research to find out that she wasn't some kind of, like, romantic, like, swooning nurse figure and that she was just, like, such a badass. That, like, tickled me pink because I think, like, all of the rumors I ever heard and all the times I've heard her referenced, she seemed not that awesome. And then she turned out to be so awesome. She went hard. That is Florence Nightingale, folks. That's yes. that's all I brought you today. <laughs> you brought it. I feel like if you really liked hearing about Florence Nightingale, you also might like hearing about Nellie Bly. She Probably. was a reporter, but she like blew information out to the public that changed a whole bunch of shit. Another person who frequently changed the world. Frequently. Yeah. You might also be into Caroline Herschel, 
who was that astronomer who created that giant catalog of the oh, yeah. stars. She changed the way we look at the sky. Yeah, that's true. Badass. Uh, Mary Edwards Walker was the first female U.S. war surgeon. She was pretty fucking rad. Well, she she was also like gender nonconforming too. Yeah, she, she was, was one, one of the pants wearers. wearers. Yeah, so if you like pants yeah, wearers, right. check it out. <laughs> you like pants wearers. <laughs> <laughs> you also could love. You might also might love Maleva Merrick. We have to give Maleva a shout out. So she was she was Einstein's wife who did all of his math for him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and helped come up with the theories and got no credit. So you know how that goes. And Margaret Hamilton, the mother of software yeah. engineering, I would say she belongs as a as a related broad here. So she definitely changed the if world. If you like uh, Florence, check those ladies out too because they're gonna blow your minds. I was very excited when Chloe and Sarah dropped some Madagascar knowledge onto me, and I thought it was like not acceptable that we talked about Queen number one and Queen number three without talking about Queen number two. So tune in next week if you want to get that hot, spicy tea on Queen Ranavalana the second. Let me tell you, it's juicy. That is all we've got. Thank you so much for listening. We love when you listen to our broads. We love when you spread the word, when you share with your friends, when you give us a like, when you give us a review. Um, If you've got a broad you think we ought to look into, you should let us know. You can comment on any of our social media at broads you should know. You also can email us anytime at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. And we are going to see you next week for another broad you should know.